0: Well, good morning. morning. Let's try to take care of that first. There we go. Uh, It's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name's Kevin, and I serve as one of our lay pastors here at Covenant Life. There you go. You guys got it? That sounds good. Okay. Uh, And every year, I enjoy meeting with family, friends who come from afar to be with us around the holidays, if that's you this morning. It truly is a gift of grace to us to get to know you. Uh, We enjoy the opportunity to continue to do so. So as some of us recover from Thursday's big meal, and perhaps every leftover meal thereafter, uh, I trust that God has yet another meal today to feed our souls from his word. And before we begin our Advent series next week, and as we walk away from, maybe you could say even Exodus out of the book of Exodus. Uh, we have one week where we will be devoting ourselves to the topic of evangelism today. And this topic about evangelism, this command that Christ gives us to go and make disciples, isn't just for our pastors. Our pastors have desired to grow in this task. Even at the beginning of this year, we said, brothers, let's be faithful, let's encourage our church to be faithful. And I know that even for some of you hearing that we'll be spending today looking at the topic of evangelism, it's almost as though I can hear the internal groans welling up inside some of you, because I think a lot of Christians feel some level of guilt when it comes to this topic. We all know we can grow in how frequently we hold out this gospel message, and yet I also know guilt alone is an insufficient motivator. And so I hope this time also encourages us that we would both remember the friendship that we have in our triune God and the joy that comes every time we seek to share what we know with the world around us. And so with that, let's pray for this time. Our gracious Father in heaven, would you help us now be reminded afresh or to hear For the first time, how Jesus, your son, is the only way through which any of us can know you. We confess that all of us come into contact with unbelievers, many of us even this past week, and fear and self-focus leads us to ignore what they need most. So would you replace our fears today with a right, reverent fear of you? May we enjoy your gospel, may we trust more and more in it. May we be faithful, God, to share this news often. This news of a bloody cross and an empty tomb is what we trust people need most. So, Spirit, would you use our efforts? Would you use this time now even to save sinners to yourself? And help us, God, in these days ahead to see your gospel spread to even more places. Amen. Well, the New Testament begins with four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the fourth of those is John. So we'll be in the Gospel of John today. The big, bold numbers or chapters will be in the second half, John 15. Smaller numbers or verses will start in verse 12. If you're picking up an ESV Bible in front of you, you'll find this on page 848. And if you're a lady who's here today and you recently attended our women's retreat, this passage might be fresh on your mind. And yet I trust that God has even more riches for us to uncover uh, from his word. So, John, the human author of this book, he was a friend of Jesus. And his original audience he's writing to was made up primarily of Jews and also Gentiles who'd converted to Judaism. And John's Number one question he's answering for us is, who is Jesus? And while this is the question that everyone should be asking, you know, I know, not everyone is asking it today. And so our goal, like John, should be to help outsiders know Jesus, not just to know him as an interesting historical figure, a good teacher, a miracle worker, but to know Christ as the source of all life. Maybe these verses on the surface don't scream evangelism at you, but I think the whole book of John has an underlying evangelistic focus throughout. In John 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written so you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. In the first half of John, he's testifying to Jesus' signs and miracles, and then in the second half, starting in chapter 13, we see the narrative shift to Jesus's final night and final words. Many people will call this section of Scripture the farewell discourse. Farewell, because Jesus is about to be delivered over unto death, and discourse, because he's leaving his disciples with some final words, some teachings. And we see final remarks given like this several times in redemptive history, like in Genesis 49, where Jacob leaves his son with parting words, and then the end of First Chronicles, when David will address Solomon and Israel. So here, yet again, God's chosen servant, Jesus, is preparing his covenant people for a new era. But I also think to call this a farewell discourse is misleading, right? Because though Jesus is going away, he'll be dying on the cross soon, he'll be buried, he's also going to rise again, and he's going to return again to give the disciples even more parting words. And so it's as though right now the disciples are getting in seed form what will fully come together after his resurrection, his ascension, and the arrival of his coming spirit. But without full knowledge of any of this, in the upper room, there's a lot of confusion. There's unhappiness, uncertainty. These men have been walking with Jesus. They've been learning from him. They've benefited from his presence and his love and now he's going away. John even calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's this intimacy, this closeness they share, and now Jesus is bringing them into this circumstance of pain they're going to experience. So we see Jesus doing a couple things. We see him consoling, reminding them of his love and his friendship. And he not only consoles, he also commissions. He's wanting them to know this place of security they have in Him, that it would equip them to even go out into the world as His agents, as His representatives, that they would go into a world that rejects Him and invite others to know Him as well. And if you've been transformed by the Son of God, if you know this long-awaited Messiah, your opportunity, too, is to go about your earthly pilgrimage, not wasting time, but befriending others with the hopes of introducing them to this friend of sinners. Whenever God's enemies would call Jesus a friend to sinners in Scripture, they meant it as a slanderous insult. But if you know it to be true, you know nothing on earth is more precious. Nothing in eternity will be more precious. In our time, we're going to be looking at three things happening in the text, and these three things will serve as our three points. The first is this, Jesus Befriends us. Jesus befriends us. Read with me in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. On this final night with his disciples, Jesus is repeating what he's already said earlier in his ministry. He's taken all of God's law. We've been studying this in the book of Exodus. And he distills or summarizes it into two primary commands, loving God and loving neighbor. Now, love is this major theme throughout John and through this uh, farewell discourse. And Jesus speaks of love over and over again. And love marks every moment of his ministry. And he says, these two loves, loving him, loving the triune God and loving others, they're intertwined, they're inseparable. Jesus is the living expression of love, and so he's qualified to command others to know it and to show it, and He expects love to define the life of every disciple who claims to follow Him. And maybe you think, someone really can't know love fully or truly until they experience it between a spouse or maybe the love a parent and child have for one another. And I think if that's you, it might even surprise us to reflect on what Jesus does. He shines a spotlight on the uniqueness, the beauty of friendship love. The Bible has a lot to tell us about friendship. In the book of Proverbs, we see a friend who loves at all times, one who's born for adversity, friends who stick closer than a brother. And we all desire that type of friend who will never leave us or forsake us, someone who never bails out on us, someone who won't lose our contact number or drift away. But Jesus is going to raise the bar showing the ultimate friend is willing to die for another. The Apostle Paul will repeat this concept in Romans 5 eight when he says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. And then Paul will look back at Christ, the Living embodiment of this claim when he says, God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the 21st century, in the midst of a loneliness epidemic, I think these words of Christ are as rich as ever. As technology advances and promises more connection, we really see it bringing more isolation, right? People are plugged in, but they're also pulling away from one another, divided by barriers. I think lasting friendship is more scarce than ever. And though we often pursue friends for what they can give us, Jesus shows us friendship is about giving and giving. He pours himself out to pursue those that he loves. If you're a bit older than me, you might remember a free love movement, this social cause that tried to remove all restrictions and boundaries from love. But Jesus says true love isn't free. It's actually costly. It's actually committed to another. It costs Jesus to take on flesh and enter a sinful world. Back in chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who will lay down my life for the sheep. That's what he does on the cross as a substitute. He sits in the seat of the accused in the courtroom of God's justice, and he faces every charge of ours stacked against him. He absorbs God's wrath against sin. And in our place, he's treated as though he's an enemy so that we would be treated as though we're friends of God. And with this same authority to lay his life down, he also says, I'll raise it up again. Now, if you know yourself, it's hard to imagine why the second member of the Trinity would love us this way, the one who's seen your ugliest moments from the past year, maybe even your ugliest moment from this morning, that He would hold out friendship for you, for me? Well, before we invite others to know that love, to know that friendship, the invitation is to know it ourselves. So if you haven't turned from sin already, if you haven't placed your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, that's the invitation today. Talk to me, talk to any member of this church. We want you to know that no matter how sinful you are, no matter how unfriendly you've been, you don't have to go another day isolated from God as one of his enemies. And Jesus, you can know the friendship, the fellowship you were created for. In verse 14, Jesus describes what happens as a result of being one of his friends. He says, you are my friends if... You do what I command. And this might sound like Jesus is describing a conditional relationship saying, I'll befriend you but only if you serve me. Except none of us does that perfectly. None of us have followed God's commands. We've not met the law's conditions. Otherwise we wouldn't need Jesus. Jesus isn't describing a conditional friendship but a reciprocal one, right? His love is free to accept, but it's going to demand a response. It's going to cost us everything. When we identify with Christ, it redefines, it reshapes us, it leads to a changed lifestyle of daily repentance. And as you and I grow in doing what Christ commands of us, it proves where our friendship and loyalty lies. And again, it's staggering that God would offer us friendship. In the Old Testament, we see Abraham and Moses, they have this unique privilege of being called a friend of God's. But Israel would never dare approach God through this terms of friendship. It was unheard of. It was actually unheard of for any teacher or rabbi to relate to a student through friendship. Rabbis would instruct and train students. They'd correct them, but they didn't call them friends. This is the context of verse 15 when Jesus looks around the table just as He looks around this room and says... No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. For all I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. This word for friend, phylos, in other places will describe a relationship between peers. And to be clear, Jesus isn't saying we're his peers or his equals. In fact, he keeps the servant distinction in verse 20 when he says, Remember my words, and he's looking back to chapter 13. No servant, us, us. Greater than him, the master. The apostle Paul also will find joy calling himself one of Christ's servants in many of his letters. And he tells all Christians in 1 Corinthians 411 should regard us as servants of Christ. So let's be clear Jesus is not doing away with the servant distinction, he's our master and Lord. And yet, I also think the disciples' jaws would be dropping to, to hear of this friendship that he's offered, right? He's also with them. He's with us, the firstborn among many brothers. He's done away with the barriers that our sin has constructed between us and God. So now we can know union, fellowship with God, eternal. In other words, in other places in Scripture, this word phylos will describe how a master related to a bondservant after they were free. Once a slave was no longer indebted to their master, they'd know every benefit and honor due to a free person. It changed the nature of the relationship they had with the master. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's especially stunning that he says, I no longer regard you as servants considering the posture he just took. Chapter 13 began with this saying, knowing his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, he wanted to demonstrate the full extent of his love. And then in stunning grace, Jesus does what no person of prestige or significance before him would ever dream of. The God of every atom and molecule, he stoops from heaven's highest glory. He dips his towel into a wash basin. If you know the story, what does he do next? He starts to wash the dirty, disgusting, sin-stained feet of those who would betray and desert him. He knows that Peter's about to deny him, but he says, unless I wash you you'll have no part with me. This physical washing is pointing to a spiritual reality that each of us are dirty, unfriendly, and yet Christ is willing to go such great lengths to ensure we can approach God as though we were innocent. Now, if you're not seeing yet what this has to do with evangelism, remember, Jesus is not just demonstrating his love for us He's also showing the type of love we're to demonstrate to one another and to outsiders that don't know Him, right? That's why He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This friendship of love, service, self-denial is something the world doesn't have a category for. It's supernatural. It's a reversal to how we live in our flesh. And I wonder who in your life you're slow to befriend, who you think might be too far gone from God's grace. The king of glory, he doesn't dine with religious elites. He shares table fellowship with sinners. It's the very act that the Pharisees condemned him for. And I think it helps when we feel that others are too far gone to remember what Scripture says we once were. Romans one thirty calls us, says that we once were haters of God, deserving rejection, alienation, eternal separation. And yet no action or thought jeopardized or diminished his pursuit of us. So as you think about the people in your life who you're most prone to overlook, let Christ's example challenge your social habits. Don't wait for the best or brightest to come your way. If you wait for someone who seems interested in your message, you might rarely or even never end up sharing. Jesus emptied himself out. As Philippians 2 says, in pursuit of deniers, deserters, the flawed and the failing, the unpopular, the unimpressive, the hardest to love. The star players in the upper room consist of a tax collector, a zealot, some smelly fisherman who can't keep him from spreading around his pleasant aroma. And if he's made you part of his family, don't underestimate who in your orbit he might save in addition to you. So that leads us to our next point. We've seen how Jesus befriends us, but the text also shows something that's a little less uplifting, right? One of the biggest hurdles we'll face. Point number two is this, the world hates us. Jesus befriends us, but the world hates us. You might even say the world unfriends us. Jump down to verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus says, no, it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out, therefore the world hates you. So in the midst of all this comforting and consoling, the monologue transitions in verse 18, Jesus' words here, they start to become a little more alarming, uncomfortable. After defining true love and demonstrating it so powerfully, after showing that he is the basis for this new type of friendship, he commissions and sends the disciples out. And in contrast to this ongoing theme of love, we see the word hate pop up repeatedly. Jesus wants to be clear that he's sending them out, sending us out into a hostile world that won't be accepting. The one who identifies with sinners warns that this saving relationship and fellowship will put a target on your back. Earlier on, Christ said, blessed are you when the world hates you. Now he says, when they hate you, remember, they hated me first. There's a cost that will come to follow in his steps, to live a holy life, to preach an unpopular message. They'll oppose us as they did him. In Jesus' ministry, we see the more he discloses who he is, the Son of God and Messiah, the more his enemies start to oppose him. And in the next chapter, he says, this is going to be the same for you. Uh, He tells his disciples they'll be put out of the synagogues, how People will think by killing them, they're offering a service to God. In the Roman world, Christians would be falsely charged more than any other religious group. And this always confuses historians who will look back and wonder, why on earth would a Christian ever sign up for this alienation, this um, hatred due to their association, sometimes even to the point of death? And if you are also called out, chosen, set apart by God you can expect to be cast aside. Misunderstood, you'll be thought of as narrow-minded, canceled, unfriended. A few decades ago, this alienation and hostility would have seemed alien to Western Christians. And praise God that we have seen seasons where many Christians are spared from hostility, but the tides are also changing, aren't they? We're not going to be shunned because we're better, but as Jesus says, for my name's sake... We don't have to go looking for hatred from others. We don't have to add any offense to a message that already offends. But the message we share in our lives that adorn it will shine a light on the world's darkness. A sin-infected heart will hate what's beautiful. The word of the cross is folly to those perishing. In verse 22, Jesus says, if I hadn't come and spoken, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. And then he says, whoever hates me hates my father also. Now, in the chapter before, verse 8, Philip asked, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough. But Jesus says, have I been with you long enough that you still don't know me? Whoever seen me has seen the father. Along with the others, Philip saw Jesus feed 5,000 mouths and after so many miracles, he still didn't understand that seeing the son coincided with seeing the father. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, and to deny one member of the Trinity is to deny all three. This hatred, Jesus says in verse 25, comes without cause. And then he quotes Psalm 35 and 69, two passages where David is asking God to act justly against those who hated him without cause. And then don't miss this. Jesus says, through this hatred, the word might be fulfilled written in their law. He's talking about the Jewish leaders who rejected Christ and sadly and ironically would fulfill the law that they only pretended to know and follow. Religiosity without Jesus is empty, it's worthless. And so for you and I, when our friends are vaguely spiritual or nominally Christian or when they look within, trusting for good works to earn them right favor with God, their rejection of Christ for salvation shows they ultimately reject and hate God. Though some might trust in formal religions, today even more might trust in false beliefs described under a shinier, prettier facade. It's this type of world of falsehood that Jesus calls us to go into. In verse 26 into verse 27, he says, we are to be witnesses to the world. The language of witnesses looks back to the prophet Isaiah who will say, we're to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So ask yourself, in a world estranged by God, are you willing to face that type of rejection, to even offend other people? And to tell our friends in bondage, deserving God's wrath, is way more offensive than declaring what we believe about gender, sexuality, the sanctity of human life. But praise God that as we seek to persuade others, this message that offends also brings life. It brings healing. In a world entrenched in ugliness, Christ will offer people an oasis of His beauty. And when our friends fail to see this, when we're canceled, remember Christ's followers from Acts 5 and the posture they took. The early believers, as they're flogged and mistreated, they then actually rejoice, knowing they're able to share in what Christ endured in a small way and how He's given them comfort to endure these things. Also, contrary to what the world might say, we can be kind, respectable, and yet still speak the truth in love. We can look to win hearts, not arguments. Scripture is not just a tool to help us get into apologetic arguments, right? It also conforms us more and more into the image of God. It leads us to love and to share Christ with people who otherwise wouldn't know and ignore him. We don't have to go around adding roadblocks to a person's conversion. We can create signposts showing them where the way, the truth, and the life is found. So as you speak, boldly proclaim the message you're entrusted with and let your love above all adorn it trusting God can soften and transform the hardest heart you know. That leads to our final point. We've looked at how Jesus befriends us and the world hates us. Now, point number three, introduce friends to the friend of sinners. Introduce friends to the friend of sinners. Verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And then I won't ask to see a show of hands of who severed the next verse from its original context. Jesus then says, whatever you ask in the, the Father in my name, He may give you. So several times in this discourse, Jesus is promising this, that He'll give whatever we ask in the Father's name. But each time, the promise is connecting to our will, matching God's. Since Christ has ushered us into God's presence, he graciously allows us to draw near to him. And though he hears and works through all sorts of prayers, some of the best prayers we offer up are requests to abide in him. Our prayers aren't just our wish list. James 4 will even warn us against asking with wrong motives. Instead, our prayers ought to show and ought to transform how our hearts and our wills align to God's how our desires are becoming more and more in line with his own. So when you pray, ask God to help you loosen your grip on the world's comforts. Ask him to uh, help you let go of the sins that entangle you. Ask God to lessen your friendship and allegiance with the world, and from that secure posture of heart uh, where you abide in him, let it lead you to speak faithfully wherever the Lord has planted you. This is at least part of what it means to bear fruit and abide. The word abide pops up a dozen times in this chapter connected to the concept of bearing fruit. And this even goes back to Genesis, this image where God creates his image bearers to be fruitful. He wants his image bearers to reflect his glory and to multiply and fill the earth. But then in Psalm 80, we see Israel liken to a vine, and as its walls are broken down, they're unable to flourish, their fruitfulness is plucked away. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, in verse 1, he's giving another self declosure He's proclaiming, I'm the better Adam, the better Israel, I'm the vine sent by God the Father whom he calls the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine, he's the one who bears fruit that lasts. So our fruitfulness doesn't come from in and of ourselves. It comes from abiding, from staying tethered to the love of Christ, from drawing nourishment from Him. And as we do that, our will and our actions are reshaped and reconformed to be more aligned to God's. This language of Christ as the vine and His people, the branches, is intimate like bride and body. It demonstrates His closeness and connection to us. And those students would customarily pick a rabbi to study under. Jesus says, I chose you. He divinely chooses, calls, and elects His disciples, appointing them to be His representatives. As the Father sends me, He'll say later, so I am sending you. Though some will hate us due to hating our message and hating Christ as we've seen, God sovereignly selected others who, upon hearing, will eventually respond in faith. I think those same individuals, as they see our lives and see how we abide in Christ, that adorns the message that we share. If we were to travel into a dangerous territory, it might help to know that we had some help for the journey. And that's what Jesus promises in verse 26. He says, when the helper comes, also known as paraclete or advocate, even friend, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he says, will bear witness about me. And you'll also bear witness, he says, because you've been with me from the beginning. Now, this concept, the Spirit proceeding from the Father, pops up a couple dozen times in John's gospel. John wants us to remember the Spirit not only will remake us, the Spirit's not only been with God from the beginning, but until the end, He will come to our aid and enable us to carry out God's mission. As the disciples begin to grow in friendship and fellowship with God, they don't Turn to technique or human cunning or high-tech gadgetry in their fishing for men. They trust in the Spirit. That's what we see over 50 times in the book of Acts, where God's mission is carried along by His Spirit. And He even uses stunningly weak human instruments to let that message go forth. So we have the Spirit's help in evangelism, and just as the first disciples, were also equipped with His Word. The Bible might be old, but it's not outdated. It's tried and true and found sufficient. If you say, yeah, but I'm a poor communicator or I'm worried I'll botch the message. Remember, Paul himself didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, but in weakness and trembling, knowing only Christ crucified, trusting there was power in the message, not the messenger. That's why he wrote, faith comes from hearing, and hearing... The word of Christ. So don't underestimate, church, how the Spirit might use your poor, stammering tongue or lack of answers to everyone's questions or even your social awkwardness to save someone. As we're sent into a world that is in desperate need of salvation, we can trust the Spirit and the Word are sufficient. And yet we should also be careful that as we befriend the lost, we might be tempted to begin befriending their values. So we can't do that, but we also can't let this fear keep us from faithful pursuit. To understand this point, Tim Keller is helpful. He talks about two tendencies to be aware of. These two tendencies, or two ditches as we like to say, are to withdraw or assimilate. Now some of us are tempted to withdraw from the world, and others words, we try to hide away from it in a safe Christian bubble. We never interact with non-believers in a meaningful way because we fear them or we fear their rejection. And then others of us are tempted to assimilate, to mix within or enter the culture, hoping that we can blend in. We desperately seek approval at times from a world that never approved of God or us to begin with. I think in both of those examples, we forsake our task to confront or challenge or influence the culture. So if you're a parent, your task isn't just to protect your kid from the world, but also to teach them how to live within it. Max Stiles, in his book, Evangelism, available in the bookstall for $6, I believe, says, We can learn to deliver the message regardless of the discomfort produced, the effort required, or the shame endured. There will be discomfort. There will be a lot of effort. There will be even shame to endure. And yet that's the task. But if you try at evangelism and you don't see immediate fruit, don't let it discourage you. It might be tempting to give up. Continue to speak faithfully where the Lord has planted you. Don't underestimate how He might use your pursuit of one person or one conversation. When we only focus on size or speed, will quickly lose heart. So start small. Speak faithfully. Don't just focus on evangelism as such, but focus on your love for people. Let that drive you and compel you to share. Now, church, if you have this spirit accompanying you, if you have the word reshaping you, if God's grafted you into a family, a fellow brothers and sisters, what more could you need? in a world that's becoming more post-Christian or secular every day, we can look back in history and know no revival ever came until it did. And always on the back of faithful Christians committed to a time-tested word, accompanied by God's perfect spirit. We could pray that Colossians 1.6 would be on display through even us where the word is bearing fruit and increasing as it did among us when we first heard and understood it. The true vine is still grafting in branches, and though fruit might not grow overnight, it will sprout, it will spread until the whole earth is filled with God's glory. So friends, if you found a good friend in Jesus, abide in his presence. Look to him when you find the world rejecting you. And with his love and acceptance that grounds you, with his truth on your lips, keep befriending sinners, trusting that in eternity we'll see some of the deadest hearts today alive and singing praises to him. So in this setting of the farewell discourse, Christ knew he would be betrayed, and yet he also instituted a meal. This meal, the new Passover meal, signified his new covenant made in his blood. And for many centuries, God's people have taken the Lord's Supper, and as they've done so, they've proclaimed the same gospel that we proclaim to others every time we share it. And no matter how good the meals of this past week have been, this meal is better. This meal is more needed. These elements look back to Christ's sacrifice as the means to bring us into friendship and fellowship with the living God. It's not a meal for perfect people, but those who trust in Christ alone for salvation. So today the supper will be open to baptized believers who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel you heard today. So if another church hasn't affirmed your profession, we would ask you to abstain Consider how Christ isn't just offering unity and friendship and a meal to Christians in isolation from one another, but He's given the ordinances to collective churches, uh, His body and bride, who are given His authority to affirm true gospel professions. The supper is also open to Christians walking in ongoing repentance and faith. And so if you're harboring sin or bitterness against another brother or sister, we'd also Ask you to abstain until that relational brokenship or division can be resolved. So, as the music plays in a moment, we will pass the elements today and then we'll take them together, rejoicing in the gospel message on display through this supper. Father, we say thank you for how Christ alone brought us near. Without Christ, we would never have what we now know. So help us, God, to enjoy the friendship, the fellowship that you've given us through the work of Christ. And may our love for the good news lead, it, lead us to share it often, that we would tell of his sinless life, his substitutionary death and bodily resurrection often. We're a family who's far from perfect, and we want to grow in how we reflect your love outward. So help us share in it, help it reverberate from these walls. May we enter our world faithfully, speaking your words of life and light. So as we take these elements, we proclaim your son Jesus' death until he comes again. Amen. Amen.